You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thomas Phillips was an avid collector of books and manuscripts, amassing what might be the largest such collection by an individual ever. Phillips was near maniacal in his efforts to expand his collection and often outbid the British Museum in auctions and estate sales. At a Sotheby's auction in 1861, a particular manuscript caught the eye of a fellow lover of old books, a Frenchman named Paul Meyer. But Meyer was unable to secure the manuscript against Phillips. When Phillips died in 1872, Meyer sought to find this manuscript and finally tracked it down in 1880. Throughout the 1890s, then, Meyer's updated translation of The History of William Marshall was made public. This poetic biography gave scholars much more information about the life of William Marshall and, to our knowledge, is the oldest surviving biography of a, quote, regular man in Europe. William Marshall met his first king of England at the age of five when he was taken hostage by King Stephen during the anarchy. His father, John Fitzgilbert, had been a loyal knight of modest status to King Henry I, holding the office of Marshal of the Horses. John ended up siding with Empress Matilda, and after a loss in battle, young William was taken into custody as a hostage. His fate was to be slung from a trebuchet, but King Stephen intervened and commuted the boy's sentence. William survived the anarchy, and as a son of a minor noble, he had no inheritance to speak of. He went into the service of a household in Normandy, learning to be a knight. It is in the 12th century when knights evolved from thuggish brutes into the model of chivalry, and William Marshall is one of the quintessential examples. As a young man, he came into the service of Queen Eleanor for two years after nearly losing his life while defending her. He then caught the eye of the king and was placed in the household of Henry the Young King. The two gained fame as champion knights in the burgeoning scene of medieval tournaments. William then served in King Henry II's household, and upon his death served King Richard the Lionheart. William Marshall was then not just a knight and a military leader, but a leading noble and aristocrat. He served under King John and after the death of King Richard, along King Henry III after the passing of John. Marshall served five kings in his illustrious career and was saved by a child as a child by a sixth. He's not a mere footnote. We have discussed the notions of the great man theory versus the theory of trends and for forces as we study history. As our story unfolds today, it's difficult to argue against the notion of William Marshall, a man who was never king and came from relatively hum humble beginnings of being a great man who singularly shaped history. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. The voice you heard Nicole open is that of Matt Whitliffe. And today we are finally getting to the Magna Carta, one of my favorite topics, a topic I wrote a paper on in college uh, last year. I'm still in, in college, which partly inspired this podcast. Uh, now, in this episode, we're going to cover just 50 years of history, uh, 1162 to 1225. And there's a lot going on and so many great stories. You're going to want to check out the reading list if you're a member of history of modern politics plus 
because there's many great short books on the Magna Carta, like by David Starkey or Dan Jones. And if you're listening to this podcast, you have almost certainly heard of the Magna Carta. But we're going to focus on the why and how aspects of the Charter and less about the what, because we often think of the Magna Carta as this big founding document of uh, American history. And it's not quite <laughs> a founding document of anything. It was just a list of grievances. But we'll, we'll get into that and we'll talk about how it happened. But you mentioned the great man of history theory and the trends and forces theories. Can you like, explain those two things for us? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, historians, I mean, th these theories of history evolved in like the 19th and 20th centuries. But the great man theory is the notion that, you know, history is shaped by great men, right? You know, Julius Caesar, um, you know, Henry VIII, uh, etc. And, you know, these singular figures are really what shaped and moved history and, and tells the story of history. The trends and forces theory has, you know, is later 20th century emerging as a counterbalance and counterpoint to the great man theory, which is focused more on the fact that, you know, history is just the assemblance of a whole bunch of things kind of all happening trends and forces. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be shaped by a, you know, one great man. Most of the time, you know, you could have replaced, you know, person a with person B and the same things would have unfolded and, and happened in history. So, um, you know, ultimately, it's probably a little bit of both, right? I, I tend to be a little bit more of a trends and forces guy myself. But, um, you know, as I said in the cold open, it's it's hard to argue against William Marshall actually being one of these great man types of things. Because I think uh, if it weren't for him uh, in his unique experiences, as we'll get to in this in this story and the influence that he had at the end of our episode, um, we'd probably be speaking French, Chris. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the thing that... Uh... I guess the way to put it is there's so many people that we've talked about and so many of them are not decent. <laughs> now we're, we're going off of William Marshall's biography stewarded by his son. So, you, you know, take that with a grain of salt. A, a lot of what we talk about, we have one window from one book by one person uh, into all of this stuff. But, you know, William Marshall cared about the, the general population and wasn't corrupted by money and power, it seems like, and kind of helped tip things in a more um, stable direction. And we see in our own times how few people are willing to tip things in a stable direction. They're more willing to tip it towards their own power and money uh, situations. And so uh, that's partly why we talk about the Magna Carta is because William Marshall saved it, as we will hear. Now, we left off in the last episode with the appointment of Thomas Beckett as Archbishop of Canterbury. So who was Thomas Beckett uh, appointed in, in 1162 by King Henry II to one of the most impactful kings in British history? Beckett was of Norman descent and born in London around the year 1120. And during the time of the anarchy, Beckett came into the household service of Theobald of Beck, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Another Norman we should mention played a central role in negotiating the peace treaty that ended the anarchy and installed Henry Fitz Empress as the presumptive heir to the throne. Beckett traveled to Italy and studied canon law and the law of the Catholic Church and became one of the archbishop's trusted leaders. Now, in 1155, Theobald recommended Beckett to King Henry II for appointment to the post of Lord High Chancellor. As this is a political history podcast, it's important that we briefly cover these emerging roles in what we're what is known as the great officers of state. So why don't you walk us through these roles, Matt? 
Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think just to reference, you talked about how important Henry II was in in establishing this structure of government. Like this is all now beginning to really emerge and solidify under King Henry II. So we've talked before about the notion of the royal household or the royal court. Uh, in effect, this is the apparatus that operates the day-to-day affairs of the state under the direction of the king. Now, the Norman kings had began to create these into more formal offices due in large part to their consistent habit of not actually being in England and requiring to have a government to function when they are away. So the first of these roles is the chief justiciar. So in the 12th century, this position was more or less the second in command to the king. This role emerged as overworked sheriffs. And the word sheriff, I don't know if you know this, is, is emerged from Shire Reeve. If you remember, a Reeve is the kind of um, uh, top representative of royal ju- justice in a county, which was called a Shire. So Shire Reeve eventually evolved into sheriff. Uh, they were given support by royal justicers. And then the chief justicer could sit in on behalf of the king to dispense justice when the king was either overworked away on business or in some cases simply didn't care about doing the job. Think like William Rufus, right? King Henry II employed two co-chief justiciers, Robert de Beaumont, the Earl of Leicester, and Richard de Lucy. Uh, De Beaumont also held the title of Lord High Steward, this office was largely ceremonial and split away from the chief justiciar as the earls of Leicester then held the title uh, in hereditary title for the next two centuries. The chief justiciar was more administrative and actually became defunct in 1263, later merging with the title of Lord High Chancellor, which we'll get to in a bit. So the next role is that of the Lord Great Chamberlain. In 1399, a separate role of Lord Chamberlain split from the Lord Great Chamberlain. In the 12th century, this holder of this office acted somewhat like a chief of staff to the day-to-day operations of the household by determining who could meet with the king, managing access to the more private quarters of the king's palace, and overseeing royal events. This role was held by Aubrey de Vere, Earl of Oxford, during the reign of King Henry II. So next we have Lord High Treasurer, which began uh, to evolve early in the reign of King Henry I, and the, and the treasury became known as the Exchequer. You maybe have heard of the Exchequer. Uh, due, and this is due to the large table which was used to manage accounts and perform calculations and its resemblance to a checkerboard. This office later extended into the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which, of course, survives today. Henry II appointed his grandfather, Lord Treasurer, uh, grandfather's Lord Treasurer, Nigel of Eli, as his own. Nigel was then followed by his son, Richard Fitzneil, shortly into King Henry II's reign. The roles of Lord High Constable, Earl Marshall, and Master of the Horse were interrelated and all had to do with matters of the military. The Lord High Constable oversaw the royal armies and administrated martial justice alongside the Earl Marshal. The Earl Marshal oversaw the royal guard and stables. Eventually, the Earl Marshal became the head of all military matters, leading the Lord High Constable as a ceremonial position. John Fitzgilbert was the first Marshal of the Horses, serving under both King Henry I and II. William Marshall took the role in 1194 from his older brother, also John, and elevating the title to Earl Marshall upon his entry to an earldom in 1199. 
And finally, we have the Lord High Chancellor. This role was almost always been unified with the other role, Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. This was an important role due to its singular ability to authorize documents on behalf of the king via the Great Seal. Documents would be secured with the wax imprint of this Great Seal, and the only way to know that communication was truly from the king was the presence of this seal, and only the Lord Keeper could provide this legitimacy. So Thomas Beckett served in the role of chancellor and became a trusted ally of King Henry II from 1155 to 1162. They are more, he was more than just a trusted ally. They were friends. Yeah. And King Henry II often liked to appoint people that he could, uh, that were malleable to positions so he could maintain total control of the realm. And when the, uh, the death of Theobald of Beck uh, happened, King Henry II nominated Becket to be the next Archbishop of the Canterbury, thinking, hey, I got my bro in this position. I'll be able to influence him. So he was affirmed and installed by the bishops of England, and the king thought he now had an inside man in the ongoing battles between the secular and ecclesiastical authorities. But he would be mistaken, as Becket turned his energy and ambition into reestablishing the powers of the archbishopric. In 1164, King Henry passed the Constitutions of Clarendon, which had pr the primary goal of ensuring that members of the clergy who committed secular crimes would be tried in royal courts instead of ecclesiastical courts. Becket resisted and ultimately had to flee in exile to France. Beckett went from his party friend to a pious individual who was uh, <laughs> seeking power, and King Henry, the King Henry II became very upset at this, Matt. He wasn't very happy about it. And, and uh, just brief context on this whole like uh, ecclesiastical courts versus royal courts. I mean, the clergy is a wide mass, right? This includes everything down to, you know, acolytes and doorkeepers at the church, right? And so not necessarily priestly orders and monks, right? And so if a, let's say a doorman of your church, you know, was accused of murder, uh, at this point, because he is a member of the clergy writ large, he would be tried in ecclesiastical court and there was no death penalty in, in ecclesiastical court. They wanted to move the power and domain over these civil crimes into the royal court because it had nothing to do with the church. That's the context by which uh, Henry II is trying to drive more justice and take more control of royal courts. Right. We have 50 state governments and look at the last hundred years, basically in America and how the one central authority has tried to uh, control all 50 different governments. The, the central authority doesn't like competing, uh, competing folks. So in Henry, in Henry II's early reign, he had another influential advisor, his mother, the Empress Matilda. Well, let's take a quick detour to discuss Matilda because we have contemporary evidence that has survived that shows her steady and experienced hand helping guide the energetic young king. She also ruled over Normandy as her his regent, and when he was on campaign in other places in his vast kingdom. As the battle between Becket and Henry II continued on, we have a surviving correspondence between the Empress Matilda and Thomas Becket in 1165. Now, we're going to take some liberties in updating the prose to more modern English, so... Uh, let it tell us what Beckett said, and I'll I'll say what Matilda sure, said. Sure, sure. So Beckett first writing to Matilda, you who acquired the kingdom and the duchy for him with so much effort and transmitted your hereditary rights to him in succession should, if you would please, employ the diligence of a mother and the authority of a lady to recall the king to duty. And Empress, Empress Matilda replied, 
Pope Alexander III asked me, in return for the remission of my sins, to interfere, to renew peace and concord between you and the king, my son, and to try and reconcile you to him. You as well know have have asked the same thing for me, and with my best efforts and intentions, I have begun and carefully considered the affair. But it seems a very hard thing to the king, as well to his barons and councils, seeing he loved and honored you, and raised you to the highest honors in the land, believing he might trust you rather than any other, and especially so because he declares that you have, as much as you could, roused his whole kingdom against him, leaving nothing less to do than to disinherit him by the use of force. Therefore I send you my faithful servant, Archdeacon Lawrence, so that by him I may know your intent and what sort of disposition you entertain towards my son and how you intend to conduct yourself. One thing I plainly tell you, that you cannot recover the king's favor except by great humility and most evident moderation. However, what you have intended to do in this matter signify to me by my messenger and your letters. So I, I love that like, passage. <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's like Dick Cheney writing to, uh, you know, somebody on behalf of George to Bush. To Barbara Bush. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> no, like, and it's... Barbara's like, listen, man, he puts you where you're at, and don't try to undo the king. You yeah. better you better get square here, man. <laughs> she's, she's just, she's got clearly invested in the power, not just, like, hanging out. She's like, you tell me what you want to do, because I'm going to come F you up. <laughs> so... So unfortunately, Empress Matilda would die two years later while the rift between Becket and the king was was continuing on. And, and Henry II would have his oldest son and namesake, Henry, coronated as junior king in 1170. More on that in a little bit. And have the Archbishop of York do the honors instead of the absent Becket. Becket was, you know, in exile in, in France. Uh, the further the, the this furthered the divide, you know, Becket taking uh, umbrage with this, and and he received permission from the Pope to place England under interdict should Henry not be willing to come to come to terms of peace. Now we'll see the power of interdict later in this episode, so it's worth kind of explaining now. An interdict is a sort of temporary general excommunication. If, if England were to be placed under interdict, there would be no ceremonies or other church actions that could be taken at all. No mass, no weddings, no proper burials, no baptisms, nothing. Um, and, so and you literally are not going to heaven. Like right. it's, not, it's not the evangelical way that Christians look at it now, where if you just believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven. But back then, the church taught that if you didn't take mass every week, if you weren't wedded in the church, you were not married. If you're not buried in a proper burial, you're not going to heaven. No baptisms. Like, it's a very big deal. It's a big deal. I was trying to, like Chris says, you know, I didn't put this into our notes, right? But I was trying to think of, like, what is the best equivalent to think of, like, where the church sat in in like modern times and what would like the interdict be i think it would be like if AT&T Verizon and Sprint got together because they were upset at the government and they shut down the internet yeah right <laughs> you know i mean which tells you where our, our the modern heart lies but yeah i think that's a great analogy so anyway, so Henry did relent, right? And an agreement was made in, in July of 1170 and Becket now returns to England. But tensions continued and, you know, in response to this one particular event and while, while, while in Normandy, King Henry II was seemed to have screamed, was said to have screamed to his, his, uh, the, on, you know, entourage around him, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? 
Yeah, so he they're that are at a banquet, and he just you know gets some bad news from a messenger and says, "Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest?" Um, and this is you know sort of apocryphal, but uh, partially influenced by Shakespeare. But four of the king's knights heard it because they were at the banquet and thought that they gained favor by the king uh, if they crossed the channel to England and murdered a defenseless Becket in Canterbury Cathedral in December of 1170. So he's he's in the cathedral right next to the the holiest part of the cathedral talking with some people, some knights, four knights walk in and slaughter him. First attempted to arrest him, but, you know, he resisted and they did not back down. <laughs> yeah. Beckett was immediately viewed as a martyr and revered by many, regardless of how they viewed him while he was alive. It, it, it so, it, you know, these, these, this is what you think about in the nonviolent path, right? So if uh, a far right person goes out and commits a violent act, it then is so, uh, seen by the public, even sympathetic people, as so abhorrent that further action must be taken, something must be done. And that is no different here. Like, it was a bridge too far. Even kings who had absolute authority, like Henry VIII or the Sun King in in France, you had limits, a lot of limits. And you had a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, stakeholders that you had to kind of manage. So, in... He was immediately viewed as a martyr, and so King Henry softened his fight against the church because he had to, committed to going on crusade, remember that, paid homage to Beckett's tomb in 1174, even receiving a public flogging as repentance. At one point, the king walks barefoot. Like three through, miles or three something. Three miles, you know, in rain, and just is humiliated by the priest to try and gain favor to, to make up for this. You know, and, and it was it wasn't, he didn't do it, but he was seen as having done it, and so therefore he knew he had to, you know, weep openly in public over a Beckett. And Beckett, for generations, becomes a centuries. A point of, yeah, centuries becomes a point of pilgrimage. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is a very big deal in in history and English history. So let's so, let's go back. Let's go back up a bit. Yeah. So let's look at the family and the lands of King Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And and this is we got to get to through this to help set up like who all these players are that are going to unfold as we get to uh, the Magna Carta. So um, through through inheritance and strategic marriage, uh, they had acquired not just the kingdom of England, right, but vast lands by which now historians refer to this as the Angevin Empire. The word Angevin is somebody who comes from Anjou, right, which is the homeland of Henry's father, Geoffrey Plantagenet. So when Henry and Eleanor were married, he was 19. She was already about 30. Eleanor did have two daughters from her, uh, you know, worthless marriage with King Louis VII of France. Um, Those daughters remained in the custody of the French king and went off to marry the Counts of Champagne and Blois. Very important to understand that to create the, uh, you know, the dynamic power balance of land inside of France. She and Henry then had eight children, her youngest being born when she was in her mid 40s. Quite remarkable for the time. Uh, So by January of 1168, here's how the family looks. King Henry II was 34. His mother, Empress Matilda, had just died a few months ago. 
Henry, uh, Eleanor was about 45 years old and their marital relationship was not in a good place. It was strained. So Eleanor left England and resided in her ducal palace in Poitiers in Aquitaine. And notably, she had just acquired a new knight into her retinue, one William Marshall. Their oldest child was Henry. He was 12, and he had been betrothed to Margaret, the daughter of King Louis VII of France, since the age of five. He was followed by Matilda, 11, who was soon to be married to the Prince Henry the Lion, the Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, one of the most powerful men in the Holy Roman Empire. And then we have Richard, who was 10, Geoffrey, who was 9, Eleanor, who was 5, another daughter, Joan, followed at age 2, and last... And certainly least the young boy, John, who had just turned one. So we've talked about succession planning and the political impacts that various scenarios of succession planning have brought through through history. And King Henry's possessions are vast. He's king of England, England, Duke of Normandy by way of his mother, Empress Matilda. He's Count of Anjou and Maine by the way of his father, Geoffrey Plantagenet. By his marriage to Eleanor, he jointly holds vast lands in Aquitaine. He played lords against each other to ultimately receive the Duchy of Brittany as a vassal, vassal state. And so with these vast lands he, had a, lands, he has a lot of territory available for inheritance. And so he proceeds with a succession plan that was mostly out of the playbook of the French, namely dividing his inheritance and crowning a junior king while he was still alive. Remember, the English don't usually do this. Uh, this is a French thing. So in 1170, his plans start to come into place. He has Henry crowned king of England. Now his son of of 15 is known in history as Henry the young king. The old king had also begun expeditions into Ireland at this time, gaining even more territory. And William Marshall is appointed to be the tutor in arms to the young Henry, the young king. So Richard was betrothed to another daughter of King Louis VII, Alice, and received the Duchy of Aquitaine. He joined her in 1171 and was made Duke in 1172 at the age of 14. Now, Geoffrey was betrothed to the heir apparent to the Duke of Brittany. John had no inheritance, which gained him the na- nickname of John Lackland. John was, uh, so he, he at one point inherits Ireland, was crazy but uh an odd story but yeah john was always the black sheep sort of forgotten because he was last in line which plays into his psychology later so it, by 1173 however a new crisis emerges king henry ii does decide to give some castles not some like real land, but some castles to John, which were in the territories of his brothers who were, despite their young age, very eager at this point to begin rule in their own right. Henry, the young king, decided to lead a revolt against his father and forms an alliance with his father-in-law, King Louis VII of France. They were joined by Richard and Geoffrey, along with many other French nobles and the King of Scotland, always ready to ally with France and fight the English. Eleanor was en route to join her sons, but is captured by King Henry II's men and placed into captivity in England, where she would remain for over 15 years until the death of her husband. She still had a lot of power. She would use a lot of spies to send out secret messages. King Henry II would emerge victorious and put his children in time out and basically complained about his his sons all the time, saying, they're going to kill me. This applied to the three older boys as John the youngest sided with his father and became his favorite. 
again, which is when he was given Ireland and then insulted everyone in Ireland and was kicked out. Uh, this applied. Uh, so uh, in 1180, King Louis VII died and his son Philip became the king uh, king philip at the age of 15 the sons of henry became more restless as the king of france was now younger than them so think That's of right. prince charles and how ready he is to be king and <laughs> now his son's probably going to be king because he's getting too old so so more tragedy strikes in 1183 when henry the young king dies uh and while he's still aligned with france in this on again off again conflict with his father and brother richard because, uh, you know, while he's also Richard is sometimes with his father, sometimes he's against it, depends on what he's doing, because all he cares about is Aquitaine at this point. They're all very transactional. What's yes. going to get me the most power and money? So King Henry II, who now takes William Marshall into his own household of knights, now revises the succession plans. So now Richard, who's now 27 years old, would become the heir apparent to England, Normandy and Anjou. Jeffrey would retain Brittany. And now, Chris, as you've been alluding to, John receives the title Lord of Ireland. Uh, this is actually six years earlier in 1177. Like, he but, goes to Ireland and tugs on the chieftain's beard. And then they like <laughs> try to start a war because over like, insult. It's just like he's a lunatic. He's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, he is. But in the, these new plans that are drawn up, he's supposed to also get Aquitaine. Henry, Henry's like... Richard, you're, you're going to get all this other stuff. You don't need Aquitaine anymore. We can give it to John. Richard loves Aquitaine and, of course, doesn't want to lose any power. He spent most of his entire adult life like building the region and fighting off against you know Toulouse and Spain and all this, fighting off rebellions, being really a jerk most of the time and you know fighting with his own lords. Uh, he's pressing his claims, and he's refusing to give up. And Lich leads yet to another family war. And this time it's everybody against Richard. Uh, Jeffrey dies in 1186. Uh, and Richard goes on to ally himself, you know, even more tightly with King Philip II, even going as far as paying homage to him in 1187. Now in 1187, news from the Holy Land would once again change the geopolitical balance in France. A mighty Muslim leader from Egypt, known in the West as Saladin, has taken Jerusalem, leaving the Christian territories in the Levant in an ever more precarious position. Calls for another crusade swept across England, uh, across Europe, and the Pope used this opportunity to try to broker peace in France and turn the factions away from fighting each other and towards fighting Saladin. Kings Henry II and Philip II, as well as Richard, all took the cross and pledged to fight in this new new crusade, which would be known as the Third Crusade. A new tax, nicknamed the Saladin Tithe, was issued to raise funds for the war. King Henry stalled further, pushing Richard towards Philip. Peace was broken. And now, what you have to understand about Richard is he's a total psycho. He's bloodthirsty. He's yes. so ready for a fight. Peace was broken, and Henry made his last campaign into France. Now, he died in 1189 and had learned that even his favorite son, John, had turned against him in his latest conflict, and the news is what broke his heart, and he died. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> that's, that's the, the, the story anyways. Richard would be coronated as King of England in July of 1189 and departed for the Levant the next summer. William Marshall, who had quickly become one of King Henry II's most trusted, now came into the service of King Richard despite nearly killing him on the battlefield months prior. William Marshall's first order from King Richard was to release Queen Eleanor from her long imprisonment. And, and Richard was always Eleanor's favorite. 
right? That, that right. you know, they they had that bond of Aquitaine. So so now we get into the dynamic of Richard the Lionheart and John Lackland, his younger brother. Uh, so Richard's now king of England, along with his many French possessions. His relationship with King Philip II quickly gets a little bit complicated. Now, we've joked about this national pastime of war between England and France in, in the past. But, you know, if you followed our story closely, the conflicts thus far have really been few. The first battles we've seen between the powers really instigated under King Henry I when uh, territory around Normandy came into question between his barons and those of Louis VI. Now, it's important to recall Normandy is still notionally part of France and thus the, it required the dukes of that land to pay homage to the king of France. As the French kings began to gain confidence, remember, they used to be relatively, you know, kind of a weak kingdom, uh, you know, from a central power perspective. Uh, they attempted to assert this notion further. So as the House of Anjou came to power through the aftermath of the anarchy, King Henry II has lands all over France by which the king, the French king, wants to be recognized as his overlord while simultaneously being threatened in a very pragmatic sense. So this is the heart of the Anglo-French conflicts that really now go for centuries. So despite Richard and Philip becoming, you know, very good friends and allies, it quickly becomes full of spite as Philip looks to Richard to remain subordinate to him, even though Richard now has all the real power. And this is even more complicated because Richard refused to marry Alice to whom he'd been betrothed since like what, five years old or some craziness, you know, Uh, who's the sister of Philip. And Richard was never really enamored with this match. And it's rumored and probably true, documented that Alice had been taken as a mistress by his father, Henry II. So imagine you're going on a road trip with a guy you hate (laughs) (laughs) and you're both kings. (laughs) So this is the stage as these two kings are about to go on the third crusade where they, according to the laws of the church, had to be allies and have peace between them and all their lords back home. It was a crime to the church to attack a man or his property while on crusade. Now, this leads to a lot of undermining. Uh, The first piece we need to briefly discuss takes place in Sicily. If you recall from our last episode, the Normans conquered Sicily in 1096. A kingdom was established in 1130 under Roger II, the son of one of the many Hauteville brothers. Now, fast forward to 1177. The king is now William II, grandson of Roger II, and he is married to none other than Princess Joan, the daughter of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Joan is just 12 years old at the time of her marriage. As Richard became king, William II died leaving Joan a widow. Now bear with us. This gets a little deep, but it lets us introduce a famous name of history, a funny nickname, and actually ties into key parts of the story. The Third Crusade was supposed to be bigger than any crusade prior. Not only were the kings of England and France personally leading armies, but so was the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick Barbarossa. You may have heard of him. He reigned as emperor from 1155 until his death. And his death comes while he is in transit to the Holy Land in 1190. While he was on his way, his son Henry VI, an heir apparent, stayed back in Germany with his wife Constance. Constance is William II of Sicily's aunt and has been named heir to the Sicilian throne in 1189. But she was stuck in Germany with her husband. Understand the other dynamics here that the papacy is very nervous about the situation because they had used Sicily as an ally in their political and military battles against Barbarossa, 
who was still fighting the investiture controversy with Rome. So unifying Germany with Sicily was not what the Pope wanted to see. So a cousin of William II named Tancred uses the power vacuum to seize power and claim the throne for himself. He imprisons Queen Joan, again, Richard's sister. You can only imagine this did not sit well when he arrived in Sicily on the way to the Levant in 1190. Tancred was not well liked and due to his short stature was nicknamed Unfortunately, the monkey king. Uh, <laughs> negotiations ensued. When things didn't go his way, Richard and his army attacked the Sicilians. Always Peace ready for a fight. <laughs> they show up to Sicily ready just to, and it's a bloody battle. And Richard does things in the battle that are like horrifying because he's a total psycho. Um, now, one more piece of the puzzle before we cover the peace terms. As we mentioned, Richard was not keen on marrying Philip's sister, Alice, who with whom he had been betrothed for many years. Queen Eleanor, now about 68, embarked on a diplomatic mission through the Pyrenees Mountains south of Aquitaine into the Spanish Kingdom of Navarre. Here, she negotiated for the betrothal of Berganaria, the, king, uh, the daughter of the king. This illustrates Eleanor and Richard's focus on the southern borders of the empire near Aquitaine and seeking to create a buffer against intrusions from Spain. Beren Berengaria would be sent to Sicily to meet her future husband. So tell us about the peace settlement. Yeah, so, so Richard and Tancred are able to come to a peace settlement and, and between, and, and Philip is part of this too. So the settlement between the Lionheart and the Monkey King is as follows. Queen Joan would be released into Richard's custody and be paid compensation for her lands that she was losing. Tancred would be recognized as king and a peace would be established between England, France, and Sicily. And it was then acknowledged uh, that Arthur of Brittany would be Richard's heir. Now, who is this Arthur of Brittany? Arthur is the oldest son uh, in the traditional line of succession under the rules of primogeniture. He's the old, he is the son of Geoffrey, Richard's younger brother, uh, and he's just three years old right now. But this is an obvious slight against Richard's younger brother, John. Uh, throughout the entire period, as Richard's planning to go on crusade, the biggest worry back home was that John would be plotting to take control away from Richard. And yeah, that's what he was doing. And, so and when, when Richard left, he was warned that John was doing this. And he said, yeah, let him try. He's yeah. so incompetent. He's going to fail. <laughs> it won't work. And it did. He found, he, you know. So, so finally, uh, and, oh yes. And our Arthur is given the name based on the legend of King Arthur, which is now by this time in the uh, late 1100s, like super popular. Uh, and in fact, it's also allegedly, this could be apocryphal, but um, Richard gave Tancred the sword, the real true Excalibur sword as a, as a gift to help secure the peace. Now, there are a lot of sources out there to learn more about Richard's campaigns on the Third Crusade, but we're going to breeze past the details. You know, these are great stories, but we, you know, we're, we're moving here. He is considered to be the most effective of the Christian leaders, but they're unable to take Jerusalem back from Saladin, and the war effectively ends in a stalemate. Saladin is a Muslim hero. Osama bin Laden invoked him often. Uh, and still stands as a a symbol in the Middle East as a, a, a bulwark against the Christian West and the Crusaders. Um, along the way, Richard shows his cruelty to be systematically executing over 2,000 Muslim prisoners of war. After less than a year and a half in the Levant, he left to return home. Philip II had left nearly a year earlier and was plotting with John against Richard, and France made territorial gains in and around Normandy with John pledging fealty to Philip. Now, 
this is a big part of all of this is a big part of why the Magna Carta happens because wars cost money. We've talked a lot about how much Afghanistan costs the Americans, right? So they are draining England, which is seen as the backwater of their lands, of all of their money. Richard, on his return home, gets captured by the Germans and held captive by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI, who is still upset about Richard's peace with Tancred that put his wife, the Empress Constance, out of power in Italy, Italy, in Sicily. Excuse me. Richard would be imprisoned for nearly a year, and while in captivity, he was brought before Henry VI to answer charges as a criminal. The entire exchange is worth reading, but we present one line of the quote, which showcases Richard's view of the status of the monarch in this time. I am born in a rank which recognizes no superior but God, to whom alone I am responsible for my own actions. So how did he get released, Matt? So none other than the furiously competent uh, Queen Eleanor, his mother, right? She, she behind the scenes helps negotiate his release, despite the fact that behind the scenes, Philip and John are actually sending messages to the Holy Roman Emperor saying, let's just keep them a little bit longer, right? Yeah, give us a little more time. So, but his release would cost the people of England a ransom of 100,000 pounds of silver. This is not inflation. We're not talking, you know, like this is, this is the actual amount in that time. Like literal um, silver. Of literal silver. And this is yeah. about the same amount that was raised in the Saladin tithe to raise money for the, the war itself, right? So I think now it's like three years of revenue of the GDP of England at the time. It, I mean, it's, 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 it's an enormous sum that they take out of the country to get him back. Absolutely. So um so he's released and Richard immediately comes back and goes to war with France. Uh eventually a truce is declared in eleven ninety-nine. Richard moves south in this temporary peace to go defend some of his lands, lands in Aquitaine and is struck by a crossbow arrow in a, in a uh, vulnerable spot in his armor. The wound turns gangrenous and he dies. Yeah. I just want to go back to that. Like we said, raise the money for the war, but like they stole a hundred thousand pounds of silver. They taxed <laughs> taxation is theft. Uh, I mean, just imagine if you are a baron or like you've endured like, King Henry II coming in, changing all the laws, fighting with your your church, uh, you know, usurping power and centralizing it. Then you have Richard and and him like coming in and taking as much money as possible out of England. And then what does the Plantagenet family leave you <laughs> with? The wonderful King John, King John, <laughs> who is like if Donald Trump were president but high on cocaine every day of those four years like he is that dysfunctional um you know but with joe biden's confusion like it's just yeah. all right so and young and like for like 30 right. 40 years old right? energy like, of a 44 year old it just <laughs> it cannot be understated how terrible john is like he isn't as violent and deadly as richard but he's not effective so he's just like he's he's just petty right like i yeah. don't know how to, i don't know how to put it other than like i, I actually at multiple times in, in putting the notes together like had to look up synonyms just to cut, try to come up with the right horse to describe yeah, I guess john. the way to put john is the like trump is a great way to to kind of explain it to people because john the way that trump's style offended the modern po political establishment 
is the way that John read to the the political establishment of that time. Um, he's he was just kind of a joke to them, but then he gets power and he just acts like John. Uh, so with Richard dead, a question of succession now is raised because Richard had named Arthur now 12 and Duke of Brittany, but a hostage of Philip II as his successor in Sicily. But there are reports that he named his brother, John, to be successor while on his deathbed due to Arthur's age and presence in the French court. So Queen Eleanor and most notably, including William Marshall, supported uh, most of the nobility, supported John despite his past treachery. And he was coronated about a month after the death of King Richard. So, you know, John had been kind of the, you know, like the party princes that you kind of read about or like the, you know, the the 18th in line of succession in England who's just partying all the time and having a great time and insulting everybody. And, and then that guy becomes king accidentally. That's sort of what happens. So everybody in the nobility is like, this is a bad idea. But what else? What choice do we have? What because else? Do have? The, the institution of kingship had to be protected in the minds of people like William Marshall. Even if we get a bad king, even if we get a bad president, we've got to protect the norms. So King John immediately moved to regain territory in France and fend off any loyalty that may exist for Duke Arthur. The next four years would see the death of Queen Eleanor who was kind of a, you know, in bowling of the bumpers, <laughs> the death of Duke Arthur, quite possibly murdered by John himself because he, he gets him back and it's taking him back to England. Oh, he'll be safe in my custody. And then ends up in a, in a bog and the loss of Normandy to Philip II. John Lackland would now have the name John soft sword because he continually lost in battle. Uh, King John met a new enemy in 1205. The Archbishop of Canterbury died, and a new one would need to be appointed. Now, John had a preferred candidate, but it was an awful, dumb choice. But Pope Innocent III would have none of him uh, of that asserting papal authority to oversee such appointments. The Pope had his candidate, Stephen Langton, consecrated in 1207, and John's refusal to acknowledge him led all of England being placed under interdict in 1208. Pope so instead of threatening it, like in Henry II, they actually instituted it. Yeah. So the internet have, is shut down. <laughs> you, so now you've got a guy who's just lost all the lands. You've, you've lost the ability to go to heaven. You're broke and you're under odious laws in the last 20 years. So the barons are starting to get mad. Uh, so Pope Innocent III was one of the most assertive and powerful popes of the era. He was well-educated, steadfastly believed in the Gregorian reforms, and re-energized the notion of crusade, expanding it to justify holy war beyond the Holy Land. The interdict would last until 1213 when King John decided to swear fealty to the pope, uh, agreeing to pay an annual tribute, placing England as a feudal fief to the papal states. Now, one thing you need to understand about during the interdict, Pope John became an enemy of the church by stealing as much silver and uh, possessions out of the church as possible to make up revenue. Um, so because churches would pay the crown when they didn't have to pay the crown because of the interdict, he just went and stole everything. That's right. And then to get out of this jam that he's in with the barons, he goes, you know what? I'm going to become a fan of the Pope. I uh, renounce that. Please help me. <laughs> yeah. And so, John immediately moved to reinitiate attacks on France, desperately trying to regain the lands in Normandy that he had lost, pulled more money out of it. Now with the Pope on his side, he pressed on Philip II 
and he makes an alliance with the new Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV, son of John's older sister Matilda. But Philip II still had the upper hand in battle, and a temporary peace was agreed to in 1214 with even Anjou now loyal to Philip II. So he's lost their homelands. Yeah. Where everyone so, is buried in the Plantagenet family in Anjou, except for John, because he lost it. So, you know, we've got decades of wars with France, crushing taxation, duplicitous and tyrannical nature of John himself leads finally to a group of barons, mostly minor lords, actually, to begin to rise up and organize against John. So let's let's kind of cover some of this. The wars in France were expensive. One significant factor in this was the rise of mercenaries or free companies. In centuries past, kings and lords depended on their own men as part of feudal duties to assemble into the armies, the escalating scale of warfare and also with the rise of chivalry, the increases in experienced soldiers due to the Crusades and the availability of able-bodied men from areas such as Flanders, which had focused more on trade, all contributed to this growing use of paid soldiers. So feudal lords were available to pay a tax called scootage in lieu of actually providing their own men at arms. Uh, taxation had been increasing since the time of King Henry II, and taxation was more efficient in England due to the structure of society than it was in the Angevin lands in France. So the English nobility, including the minor lords and the ecclesiastical classes, had paid disproportionate taxes to fund these military adventures in France. And if you add in the salad and tithe and the massive taxes raised for King Richard's ransom, then you can see why the situation was already bad even before King John took the throne. So with John's lack of success in military campaigns to take back the Angevin land that had fell into Philip's control, he doubles down on taxing the English because he's lost his tax base in France. This creates a further downward spiral in his reign. So in addition, during the interdict, King John took the opportunity to raise more taxes on the clergy, confiscate their wealth, as we mentioned, use his conflict with the Pope to assert his own control over the monastic community. And similarly, John used pay to play tactics for positions of patronage with his lords and increase fees for various royal grants, such as legal fees, hunting rights and marriage grants. So you want to get remarried? OK, you can get married or remarried, but it's going to cost you. Uh, which was traditional, but he took it to levels that was insane in terms of cost. So John was also notoriously ill-tempered and two-faced. He would turn on his allies in favor of new ones constantly, keeping even his most loyal lords fearful of the stability of their position. This was complicated by the fact that most of the leading men held lands in both England and Normandy or other evident Angevin lands. Lands. These lords wanted to retain their holdings in France, but would have to pay homage to Philip II, now enemy number one of King John. William Marshall had, by this time, inherited the title of his father as a royal marshal. He'd been granted the Earl of Pembroke and the lands in England, France, Wales, and Ireland. When John gave him permission to pay homage to King Philip II for his French lands, John turned on him and encouraged raids and military incursions on Earl Marshall's Welshess and Ireland. Ir like, John was also notorious for feeling that he had the royal prerogative to take the wives of his lords for his own pleasure, which is the idea of the prima nocta that you see, which is mostly fake in, in Braveheart. But um, yeah, he but, is. But John was bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, so he says, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, like William Marshall is this nice dude <laughs> trying to be nice with everybody. And then. Yeah, go ahead, do that. Oh, you did that? I'm mad at you. Now I'm going to declare war on you. And then 
sleeping with daughters and wives of all of these barons, it just it became too much. And for one of them, it was an assault on an alleged assault on his daughter that led him to um, mobilize. And that was Robert Fitzwalter. So in January 1215, he gets together a group of barons and planned to depose John of the throne. King John stalled to buy time, but he knew that he would have to negotiate when the rebel barons occupied London and gained more support for their cause. If you held London, then you held the entire country. One last side note, as it's important to understand the position of London at this time. Uh, by the mid-12th century, London was clearly the largest city in England, but was not yet the capital of England. Recent, recent kings had been largely mobile, and thus the capital moved with them. So the principal location of the royal household, while in England, had moved from Winchester, the old Anglo-Saxon capital and still home of the royal treasury, to Westminster Palace, which was just outside of London, west along the Thames River. So as larger towns began to develop an independent merchant-based economy beyond feudal agriculture, they began to seek different treatment under the law in, in regards to taxation. This trend began in France and Italy, where such cities were beginning to develop and were referred to as communes. Communism. London began to push for similar treatment and had clearly become a strategic city by the time of the anarchy to rally support for wealthier individuals. Local aldermen had also emerged as a council of barons to represent the community of lords. And in 1189, London was given the unique status of having its own mayor. Henry Fitzalan was the first Lord Mayor of London. Records show that he was an alderman from as early as 1168. And under this special status, London would begin to further gain independence from typical royal feudal authority. Yeah. So, so you know, getting London, as you mentioned, it was important. And London now has a unique status. It doesn't kind of live within the same context of the rest of feudal society. Um, I, I always think about, you know, when you're playing the game Civilization, if you have, right, you get to that note, th that point of... Um, you know, inflection where you're suddenly now really starting to, you know, develop into out of just farming and, you know, building up your grain and stuff like that, that you can start having uh, people specialize in certain tasks, right? And your research goes further, et cetera. This is, this is now what's happening here in London. So anyways, both sides appealed to the Pope, Pope Innocent III for arbitration at this point, the barons, the rebel barons and King John. But this is just really, you know, the, the waiting time now runs out. And so John agrees to go into negotiations, appointing Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, who to lead the negotiations, although he had been, if not outright supporting, at least very sympathetic to the cause of the barons. The barons started with Henry I's coronation charter of 1100 as their basis for demands. There's also another draft of the charter lost to history. But it's this framework from which Langton and other parties worked to design the actual Magna Carta. Uh, the Magna Carta was then reluctantly agreed to by King John, but issued under his royal seal on June 15th, 1215, after the negotiations concluded at a location between London and Windsor Castle known as Runnymede. So if you, you know, hear people talk about Runnymede every once in a while on like Monty Python or other British humor, you'll hear, you know, Runnymede reference. And it, it goes back to this negotiation for um, the Magna Carta. It was seen as a place that where there had been many different meetings because it was a wide open field near London that you couldn't get caught there, basically. So it was always a place where people would meet and negotiate things. So um, now it didn't actually happen in the field. You know, you had different camps and castles and all that kind of stuff. So 
Uh, now, there's no real point in getting into the details of the Magna Carta because uh, we'll cover some of the next episode, and a lot of them are very specific to that time, like weights and measures. However, the most controversial and baron-friendly clause was number 61, the so-called security clause. Key portions read, We give and grant to the barons the following security. The barons shall elect 25 of their number to keep and cause to be observed with all their might the peace and liberties granted and confirmed to them by this charter. If we transgress, we meaning the, the king, transgress any of the articles of the peace or of this security, the 25 barons may dis, distrain upon and assail us in every possible way with the support of the whole community of the land by seizing our castles, land, possessions, or anything else saving only our own person and those of the queen and our children until they have secured such redress as they have determined upon. We will not seek to procure from anyone, either by our own efforts or those of a third party, anything by which any part of these concessions or liberties might be revoked or diminished. Should such a thing be procured, it shall be null and void, and we will make at no time use of it and either ourselves or so, so, so or through a third party. So, in other words, they appoint a body of 25 barons to watch the king, and if he messes up anything, they're going to take his castles, his land, his possessions. They can do anything to them, but save they see only yeah. killing them. So, now, the charter was doomed to fail with this provision. You know, could you imagine the uh, a guy like Donald Trump, you know, you sign this thing <laughs> where you lose power? No. King John got the answer that he wanted from the Pope Innocent III just two months later because he signed it knowing he wasn't going to follow it, writes a little note to Pope Innocent III and says, they're being mean to me. And the Pope stated that the charter was not only shameful and demeaning, but also illegal and unjust since John had been forced to accept it and was null and void of all validity forever. And that's the end of the Magna Carta. That's it. There was no. It was the lasted two months. It was worthless. But this and is actually true. Going to follow it, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and we will we will revisit why it keeps coming up over the the next few centuries. Um, but it, it 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 the breaking of it and the the Pope saying it was null and void led to the first Barons War, a civil war. Uh, yeah, there will be more Barons Wars. Uh, it broke out that summer with the Barons appealing to France and inviting Prince Louis, son of King Philip, to come and take the English throne from John. So now you have John's army, you have the Barons army, and now the French army shows up. By May of 1216, a fleet of ships carrying Prince Louis and his army landed in Kent, down in the southeastern part. And in June, they took London. You take London, you take England. Now nearly surrounded, paranoid, and giving into his excesses, King John contracted dysentery and died in October 1216. King John's oldest son was Henry, just a nine-year-old boy. The nobility now had a decision, pass the crown to the eight-year-old Henry or place the French prince on the throne. should be noted that John used to travel with th tens of thousands of barrels of wine and basically drank and ate himself to death. And... Uh, you know, was his own worst enemy. So now here we are, Matt. Yeah, we got what, William Marshall. What do, what do we choose? He's been, he's remained part of the Royalist forces. He is still, you know, bless him, trying to hold the, the tradition of the kingdom together and fighting for the Royalists against the barons. He is named the protector of young Henry. And the church still backs the Royalists, importantly, because they kind of have to, as England, after all, is a fiefdom of the Pope. Um, yeah. 
So the church backs the Royalists, which allows for the coronation of King Henry to happen in late October. After all, the church has to coronate the new king. The, sorry about the dog there. The Magna Carta was then edited and reissued with the security clause being one of the key provisions stripped from this new charter. So when King Louis, uh, excuse me, when Prince Louis of France returns to France to get more reinforcements, the papal legate, the diplomat uh, with the ability to speak on behalf of the Pope, declares the royalist cause to be now a crusade. As after all, the barons were attacking the king of England, a feudal vassal to the Pope. This now starts to get some barons to defect due to both William Marshall's reputation, the reissuance of a Magna Carta, and the position of the church. So by the spring of 1217, Marshall is now leading a, a resurgent royalist force into victories against the French and the remaining rebel holdouts, leading to a truce, final peace negotiations in the summer. Yeah, and so this war is now over with the Treaty of Lambeth in September of 1217. Yeah, what's interesting is Marshall, who was, who was aligned with King John and Henry and the Royalist forces, but was also a baron and friends with many of the people on the other side, uh, and was seen as this very stable hand, takes the Magna Carta, strips out many of the things that were... Um, because John is gone, he can take out some of the more odious parts of it to the royalist factions, reissue the Magna Carta. And so he changes the more controversial parts, but saves the Magna Carta because he flips a lot of it on its head, makes it more favorable to the king, but gets the barons. And it's a beautiful piece of negotiation by William Marshall, Langton, the, the Pope's uh, people, the barons and uh allows King Henry the the third and the Plantagenets to continue to reign, even though there's a civil war, they're they're led by Marshall acting as regent. So Marshall would die in 1219 at the age of 72, and King Henry the second would be or the third would be coronated again in 1220 and reissue the Magna Carta of his own free will in 1225 as young king ruling in his own right. And the Magna Carta would be reissued many times to come. And so many of the copies, I think the 1225 reissue is the one that I saw in Washington, D.C. Maybe uh, these get issued and placed in churches. Uh, I think, you know, the church, the cathedral in Lincoln has one. And that's the one that maybe in the they loan to the U.S. So, yeah, there uh, it, it's a a brilliant move by William Marshall to kind of save all of this and sets the precedent for the 25 barons for barons controlling the king and, and having a greater influence. And it's not just the king alone. He now has to submit to the will of his barons and you get the groundwork for parliament, Matt. Yeah. And, and this, this will really set the stage and, and put these principles into the test as King Henry, the reign continues, uh, which we will begin to cover in the next episode. And of course we will get the second Baron's war. We won't tell you yet how it happens, but you know, the, the development of law and parliament really starts to solidify here through the rest of the 13th century under King Henry, the third, and then his successor, King Edward, the first. Yes, only three three parts of the Magna Carta still exist in English law of the 63, but it's an important step that we will discuss in episode 11. And we thank you so much for listening to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. That is Matt Whitliff. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Matt is the, the uh, 
the sung hero of this podcast for uh, <laughs> for doing all the research and really uh, kicking butt on it. So I want to thank him. Thank you. Uh, specifically, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to all of those who support us by signing up at History of Modern Politics for 10 bucks a month to get all of the goodies like the outlines and the reading lists and the video and way early release and no commercials. It's a great deal. So you can you can support great history like this podcast as well as the work that we put into this and we thank you so much. So if you're getting value out of this, we would definitely encourage you to please go sign up at historymodernpolitics.com and uh, get value back for the value that you get out of this. So thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again in two weeks.